You're listening to the Midtown Church Sermon Podcast. Midtown Church is a family loved and served by God, compelled to love and serve each other and Austin with God. Learn more at midtownaustin.org. Hey, good morning, Midtown. You guys can come grab a seat. Uh, my name's Justin, one of the pastors here, and get the privilege of introducing my uh, buddy here that's going to be speaking this morning. Uh, you guys hear us say every Sunday that we're a family that's loved and served by God, compelled to love and serve each other and Austin with God, but it's not just Austin, that we really believe that we're called to love and serve the world and the nations. And one of the unique things about Midtown is we're really postured to be a sending church because we have so many graduates and, and young professionals that go take different jobs and move all around the country, and so we consider ourselves really a sending church, one of the privileges that we have. And so we're going to get to hear a message today on global missions and what God's doing around the world. So I'm going to introduce my buddy Mark. Mark and I actually met in China 27 years ago, so (laughs) technically Seattle, but we went to China like the next day. Hmm. Uh, We've been friends for that long. He's one of my dearest friends. Um, uh, One of the things that I always loved about Mark, even when we were in college and since I've known him, is that his heart for other people uh, has an incredible ability just to connect with people who are far from God and love them and, and connect with them. Even this last week, we had a, a surprise birthday party for Brenda, and Mark's over there mixing and mingling with a bunch of my friends and neighbors, and I just was watching and thinking, man, I love this about this guy. Uh, he's uh, served as a youth pastor, and for many years was a college pastor at UT, and he and his wife, Stessie, and their family just recently got back from serving in South Africa. I'm sure he'll have plenty of stories to tell us, so let's give Mark a great Midtown welcome. Thank you. Am I on? All right. Well, great to meet you guys. I could tell you a lot of funny stories about Justin, but um, a lot. But one of them that just came to mind is he's wearing shorts today. He used to make it his goal. We lived together in college. We were roommates. And um, he would make it his goal to wear shorts every single day of the year. And he usually pulled it off most years. I think every now and then he uh, put on some jeans when it was like, you know, negative five. Okay, that doesn't happen in Austin. But, you know, it was, that was Celsius. So, um, All right. Well, let me tell you, um, it's great to be at a church that's so casual. I I asked, what do I need to wear? Because a lot of times if you speak at a church, they want you to kind of dress nice. And I was told, oh, no, jeans and T-shirts, just fine. And I was like, man, that's good. And and I got here, and it's clearly the case. I mean, you guys look great. (laughs) You look casual. At my church, I feel weird if I don't at least do something with my hair. But today, I just just got up and came straight to you. So um, that's really nice. Thanks. Okay, I want to just, before we start, missions. Some of you in the room are real excited about it, but some of you, maybe even a significant percentage are like, ah, the missions talk. It's that once a year thing. They're probably going to play tinkly music at the end and see if we'll come up and commit to spend the rest of our lives in a mud hut somewhere. Um, (laughs) That is not going to happen at all, period. So please give me a chance. Don't, Don't write me off. Don't be afraid that God might touch you or something like that. In fact, maybe... Invite him to touch you. That'd be cool. Um, I want you to be open to how God is calling you to engage with missions. So right away when I say that, I hope you realize that not all of you in this room are called to go to the mission field. You're not. You're not. And don't be afraid that you're going to be. Um, because if you are, then God's going to meet you with the passion and the desire and all that. So don't, don't worry about that. That's, you know, it'd be like, I, I don't like liver. And it's like, I don't want God to call me to like liver. Well, you know, if tomorrow I woke up loving liver, I'd probably be fine having it for lunch, right? So just let God work on your heart. But most of you are called to be right here, doing what you're doing, doing it better than ever, and, and maybe using your resources to 
send people to the mission field. So please don't be afraid. Let's see what, let's see what God's going to do. Um, in that light, I want to tell you a couple of quick little anecdotes that I think will kind of illustrate my picture about how many misperceptions we have of missions. So in 2003, the Hubble Telescope, multi-multi-billion dollar international project, this telescope, they decided to take the telescope and point it at a part of the heavens that appeared to every, well, to the naked eye, but also to every telescope on the planet to be completely dark. Nothing there. Now, you can imagine time on the Hubble telescope is very valuable, right? You don't just take this multi-billion dollar piece of equipment and waste it. But they said, we need to know if there's anything there. Not this particular space, just because lots of what you look at in the heavens looks black, right? So right now, if you and I were to walk outside and you were to count the number of photons flowing into your pupils. Do you know how many photons flow into your pupil in any given second on a sunny day? You probably don't. I had to look this up. It's around a quadrillion every second. That's one with 15 zeros after it. That's a lot of photons. I tried counting it once and I didn't, I didn't get very far. But um, So if you're, if you're looking at the stars at night, you may have a few million come into your eyes in in a minute. So it reduces a lot. The Hubble telescope pointed to a space and they were getting about one photon per minute. So just try to imagine that. Like nothing was coming in, right? They pointed it at one space for 21 days. And when they were done, I mean it added up to 21 days. I think I did it over three months, but it added up to about 21 days of continuing, continuous look at one spot. Now to give you an idea of how small this spot was, if you could get a McDonald's straw, stretch it out to eight feet long and somehow keep it straight and go like that and look through it, that's how much of the sky it was looking at. Very small. It amounts to about one thirteen millionth of the sky. You could split the entire sky into about 13 million parts. They were looking at one part of it. Do you know what they found when they developed those pictures? Look them up today when you get home. It's called the Ultra Deep Field Hubble Telescope Pictures. They found a picture, the picture that came in had 10,000 stars. Imagine that. A part of the heavens they didn't know had anything, right? 10,000 stars. Except there's a surprise ending to the story. Turns out they weren't stars. They were galaxies. So in one tiny spot of the heavens, there were 10,000 galaxies. Now a galaxy has between 200 billion and a trillion stars. So do the math, times 10,000, times 200 billion or 100, or, and a trillion. Multiply that out, get back to me later, we can talk about that number. But it's mind-blowing, right? That's one thirteen millionth of the sky. So, that's always been there. Your whole life that's been there, right? But you didn't know it was there. But it's been there, and there's 12,999,999 more parts of the sky that could do the same thing with, and no doubt find something similar. The, the world, the, the universe is massive, and there's so much we don't know. So, I want to talk to you about missions, and I want you to just be open to the fact that some things about missions, maybe some ways of thinking about missions as a Christian that you've just kind of gotten, you've kind of gotten some weird souring or some negative or some shame that's associated with missions, so let that go. And one more story to illustrate that point. In 1994, there was a famous earthquake. Sad that earthquakes get famous, and I'm just me. But um, Northridge earthquake in Los Angeles. Okay, it was a 6.7. It struck in the middle of the night, and it caused a blackout in Los Angeles. Okay, I mean, highways fell. It was real bad. If you're, if you're my age, you remember it. 
If you're younger, you might have read about it. It was a really bad earthquake. Well, in the middle of the night, big earthquake kind of wakes you up. People wandered out into the streets of Los Angeles, and there were no lights. No lights at all. It was totally black. Now, the first lights in Los Angeles started being put, street lights started being put in in 1867. In 1882, they started putting in electric street lights. So from that time onward, Los Angeles was lit up. I mean, even probably by the early 20th century, it was lit up. Well, people walked out into the, into the streets, scared and probably relieved that they were alive. And, they, and what happened that night is, it turned out later, and I don't understand this about landlines, but for some reason, even in blackouts, even in blackouts, landlines work. Those of you that grew up with only cell phones, you have to just trust me on that. I remember I thought it was weird when I was a kid. So people began calling the Griffith Observatory in Los Angeles. And they said, hey, there's, uh, there's, there's strange things in the sky. So the Griffith Observatory, I mean, there are a bunch of astronomers. So they're going, oh, I wonder what people are seeing. And they're trying to figure it out. Well, all these reports came in. People thought they were like UFOs or something. Turns out, you guessed it, they were seeing stars. <laughs> a lot of the residents of Los Angeles had never seen stars. Now, how many of you know that stars have been around, we won't get into an age of the earth debate, stars have been around for a long time, <laughs> right? A real long time. And lights had been around in Los Angeles for 100 years. So isn't it funny that stars, which in one, by that definition, are far more real than lights, far more real. I mean, I don't know what real means. They're both real. But you know what I'm saying? Like stars are massive and they, they exist for eons and eons. But these people had never seen stars. They'd only seen lights. And as soon as the lights, the things that were kind of right in their face, were turned off, they could see a much deeper truth revealed beyond those things that were blocking out the much deeper, much more ancient, much more significant, you might argue, truth, right? I mean, I don't know. I think a star is much more fascinating than a light bulb. But I like light bulbs. I'm not against them. Um, so, so what if some of our thinking about missions, what if we've been blocked by the lights in our face? See, I think Satan loves to put guilt on us. Like, okay, when I was a kid, I thought, man, I really want to follow God, but I don't want to get too close to him because then he'll make me marry a woman I'm not attracted to and I'll, and I'll have to move to Africa. Because clearly that's God's goal is he wants us to all be miserable and those both sound like pretty miserable things. Um, just being honest. So one day God and I had a talk and he said, I'll, t- I'll make you a deal. You can marry a very attractive woman if you'll still go to Africa. So we worked it out and that's what we did. No. <laughs> No, it's true. There's my wife. She's beautiful, and I married my wife, and um, I'm very attracted to her to this day. But you know what? Um, when, I got, when I did go to Africa, I really wanted to go. It, didn't, it wasn't like I made a deal. In fact, when I married Ceci, she was like, listen, I know you're a pastor. She was like a year-and-a-half-old Christian. I know you're a pastor and all that. I am never going to the mission field unless, like, God, you know, she was, she was a new Christian. She loved the Lord. If God tells me to, I will. Because I already had a little bit of interest by the time we got married in, the mission, in missions in general. And I thought, maybe I could do that. She was like, uh-uh-uh. I am not going to the mission field unless, like, God shows up and tells me I have to go. I'm like, okay, fair enough. I mean, God can do that. He's really capable. So, um, so anyways, when we decided to go to the mission, well, let me save that story until a little bit later. By the way, what was the name of the young lady that's going to Japan? Melanie? Okay. Not Melody, but Melanie. Okay. I hope you guys support her. Okay, Melanie, <laughs> Mel, I liked Melanie's story. You know, she was on one trajectory, and then God kind of bumped her off of it. And I liked that story. You know what I liked about it was she didn't mention an angel. She didn't mention a dream. She didn't mention a vision. Now, those are great things, and I actually believe in those things. God still does those things. But 
That's not necessary to go to the mission field. Um, so let me, let me read something to you. There's a couple of misconceptions we have about missions that I really want to address uh, because they hold us back from the fullness of missions. So um, this is my key verse for today. It's Psalm 46.10. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted on the earth. Missions was not like a last-minute thought. We, we always quote Matthew 28, 18 through 20. Great commission. Wonderful passage. Jesus says it, then he pops up to heaven. So we can easily think, oh, Jesus came, he did his mission, and he came to earth, and then he's like, oh gosh, oh, embarrassing, I forgot to mention, would you kind of tell other people about this? Okay, gotta go, bye. And that was our call to missions. Like, okay, that was weird. He only mentioned that at the end there. Um, that's not true. That's not true. Missions are God's heart from the beginning of the Bible to the end of the Bible. From the, the whole thing. Now, don't, don't get guilty. I'm not saying you have to go to the mission field. But I'm just saying God always cared about missions. He always cared about making his name great on the earth. He always cared about making his renown go throughout the whole planet. He wants everyone to know who he is because he wants everyone to know how much he loves them. He wants everyone to know who Jesus is because he wants them all to experience the love and forgiveness that only Jesus offers. Okay? So let me, let me take a couple stories that you've heard and just show you how this story you've heard, you think you've heard it a million times. You may, not every one of you, because some of you have taken perspectives, but you may have missed some very important things in these scriptures. So David and Goliath. What does David and Goliath have to do with missions? Nothing, right? A little guy kills a big guy, cuts off his head. It's gory. It's wonderful for boys and some girls. And we love it. But let me read this to you. 1 Samuel 17. And the Philistine, that's Goliath, moved forward and came near to David with a shield bearer in front of him. Doesn't seem fair that he had two people. But, and when the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him, for he was but a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. And the Philistine said to David, Am I a dog that you come at me with sticks? Let me pause. I don't want to read the whole story. But you remember, David goes in and says, I'll fight this guy. It's like probably 17, 18. Little, little Jewish guy. I'll fight, I'll fight this giant. And Saul's like, okay, but put on my armor. Put on, have my shield, have my sword. He puts it all on. He's like, he's like getting weighed down. He's like, I, I can't go and fight with this. First of all, I don't know how to fight with swords. Second of all, I can hardly stand. And so... He's like, let me just go do what I know how to do. So he gets a slingshot, right? Not this kind of slingshot, this kind of slingshot. Okay. And the Philistine said to David, am I a dog that you come at me with sticks? Because he sees this little boy holding. And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. Goliath invoked his own gods and cursed David. The Philistine said to David, come to me and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field. Now, at that point, if I'm David, I would have wet myself and run away and going, just kidding, sorry, guys, and run back home, right? But David doesn't do that. He says, you come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. Wow. 17-year-old boy. He gets it more than the whole army, more than the king who was anointed by Samuel. He gets it. He's like, you're not coming against me. You're coming against me and my God. And it's the my God part that means you're going to lose today. Okay? This day, the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down 
and cut off your head. So I don't know why I'm getting choked up. That's just so cool. And I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the air. And the story doesn't end there. Big dramatic pause. And then David says that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. Guys, that's missions. David wanted the whole world to know that the God of Israel was the only true God. There's really no competition. There's lots of gods out there. There's lots of demons out there. There's only one true God. And David said, I am going to defeat you today. You come to me cursing me in the name of your demons. I'm going to defeat you that the whole world may know that there's a God in Israel. Now let's think about our scripture again. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. I forgot to look, but that was probably written by David, right? Psalm 46. Same, the same David who fought Goliath. I could be wrong. Some of you are going, no, that was written by the, uh, whatever, the director of music, whatever those other names are, Ahab or whatever. Okay, Daniel 2.26. You guys know Daniel in the lion's den? If you don't, you're about to learn it in short form. So Daniel refuses to stop praying. Every day he opens his window and he prays towards Jerusalem. So some bad guys that don't like him, that are jealous of him, go and tell Darius. So this is what happens in verse 226. The king declared to Daniel whose name, I'm sorry, this is not Daniel in the lion's den. I'm so sorry. This is not Daniel in the lion's den. This is Daniel interpreting the dream of Nebuchadnezzar, right? Nebuchadnezzar is about to kill all the wise men in, in um, his kingdom, in the kingdom of Babylon. The king declared to Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, Are you able to make known to me the dream that I have seen and its interpretation? So Daniel hears that the king is about to kill everyone. So he says, well, the Lord can give me the dream. The Lord can give me the, the dream and the interpretation. Because the king has said, I won't even give you the dream because I know you guys can make stuff up. That's my commentary. But he's, the, the king is like, I'm not going to give you something you can fake me out with. You've got to come to me, give me the dream I had that no one knows but me and its interpretation. So everyone's like, no one, no king has ever asked this of his wise men. So Daniel's like, I can do this. Or rather, God can do this through me. So sure, I'll do it. So Daniel shows up. The king says to Daniel, are you able to make known to me the dream that I have seen and its interpretation? Daniel answered the king and said, no wise men, enchanters, magicians, or astrologers can show the king the mystery that the king has asked. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries, and he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. Your dreams and the visions of your head as you lay in your bed are these. And then Daniel begins to prophesy to the king, this is the dream you had. Would you believe someone if they told you the dream you had last night? Because that's what Daniel did. Actually, probably weeks had passed. Daniel tells the king the dream he had. Skipping ahead 18 verses. This is how King Nebuchadnezzar, the greatest king of arguably the greatest, one of the greatest civilizations to rise on the planet, said, it says, Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell upon his face and paid homage to Daniel and commanded that an offering and incense be offered up to him. The king answered and said to Daniel, Truly, your God is the God of gods and the Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries, for you have been able to reveal this mystery. Amazing. One of the best, like, encapsulations of praise of God in the whole Bible is from a pagan, secular, Babylonian king. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. 
I will be exalted in the earth. Psalm 46.10. Next chapter, Daniel 3, the fiery furnace. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in a furious rage, commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. So they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar, same king. You know, we backslide. We're, we're Christians filled with the Holy Spirit. We backslide. So clearly a pagan king, he gets to backslide too, right? So next chapter, Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? To remind you, he had a 90, is it 90 or 70 feet? I'll say 90. I think it was 90. But he had a 90-foot golden image of himself built, and he, he said that everyone needed to worship the image of himself. This is a pretty narcissistic ruler, you know? He said, come and worship me. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, three Jewish boys said, oh no, we're not going to do that. No way. And, and it was at the threat of death. It was already a law. If you don't do it, you'll be killed. Now, if you are ready, when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, to fall down and worship the image that I have made, well and good. In other words, I'll forgive you for not having done it up to now. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Try to imagine how you would respond to that. You're about to be thrown into a fire. And everything you know of your reality tells you you're going to burn. You're going to die that day, right now. And you're looking at the king who can make it happen. He holds your fate in his hands, it would appear. But they knew better. They answered the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace. And he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. In other words, hey, if God wants to save us, he can. It doesn't really matter. We're not going to worship you. So kill us if you must. We're not worshiping you. Skipping ahead 10 verses, Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, oh, I'm sorry. I'm just going to sum up the story. They get thrown in the fiery furnace. They do not die. And then as they look in, they see a fourth person Many theologians think this was like an Old Testament uh, apparition of Jesus, an epiphany of Jesus. It's like Jesus showing up in the Old Testament. Whether or not that's true, maybe it was just an angel. The point is, is they're protected in the fiery by this fourth person who protects them. And the king, Nebuchadnezzar, looks in and is like blown away. So he gets them out and they say, not even the smell of smoke was on them. I mean, you know, you can't sit by someone who smokes a cigarette and not get the smell of smoke on you. But they were in a furnace and they didn't get the smell of smoke on them. Nebuchadnezzar answered after this and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants who trusted in him and set aside the king's command and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own god. So what he was trying to kill them for earlier, he's now praising them for. Good job for not submitting to me. Therefore I make a decree any people, nation, or language that speaks anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb and their houses laid in ruins, for there is no other God who is able to rescue in this way. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. Okay, the second misunderstanding I want to address that missions are only for the super spiritual. 
Guys, not true. I'm a missionary and I'm not super spiritual. You don't have to be the most spiritual person around. Here's the way I think we think about it by default. Maybe you've never thought about it explicitly, but there's the regular people. There's the Bible study leaders, maybe. There's the, like the low-level staff positions and maybe the pastoral staff. And then if you're really spiritual, you're a missionary, you know. Because, you know, missionaries, I, I was a missionary. We show up and we kind of float above the ground. Like. We kind of like, we're different. We're, you know, well, yes, pastor, if you, if you must cut that song short, but why don't we worship longer? So, um, so but that's not right. Missionaries are just regular people. We're sinful. We've, we've got bad desires and good desires. We're broken like you. So I, I know you know that in your head, but I'm only just putting it out there explicitly just so you, you hear me say it. You know, sometimes we need to hear true things because we don't even realize we're believing false things until someone says, yeah, now that you mention it, I kind of do think that. Okay, so Stacey and I, this is how we decided to go on the mission field. And this is why I like Melanie's story, at least what I've heard of it so far, Melanie. We went to, we took a break from college ministry after seven years. We moved to California. We were doing a ministry school. And I had decided I can't think about the future. I'm super future oriented. And I felt like God was teaching me, you need to learn to be present. So I had done really well our, for six months. And our six months were at the end. And I said, hey, babe. One night I, I typed in this thing that the, the guy that started Perspectives is a good friend of mine. And I typed in this thing that Steve told me to look up. And it said it was a, a mission organization in Africa, South Africa. I looked it up. It looked really cool. They were all about planting churches and multiplication. I'm like, man, this looks really neat. And South Africa looks incredible. So I called Sessie over to the computer one night. I said, like, hey, babe, look at this. I go, this is All Nations. This is that thing Steve mentioned to me. And she's like, yeah, it looks cool. So we go through the, the nighttime routine, get the kids in bed, and we're lying in bed, and I go, hey, babe, I got a question for you. And she's like, yeah, and I go, in September, this is January, right, 2011. I go, in September, when, we, when we're done here, do you wanna, would you rather head back to Austin, which is where I'm from and which where she's been since she's 18, would you head back to Austin or would you rather go to Africa? If you had to choose, I mean, lay aside what God's actually saying, what, do you, what would you choose? And I knew her answer. Mark, I'm never going to do missions unless God shows up or an angel or a vision or, you know, or I levitate or something. So um, I, I knew her answer. And uh, she thought about it like this. And she's like, I'd go to Africa. And I said, excuse me? And she's like, yeah, God's been speaking to me for a few weeks. And he said that our next step was going to be overseas. I needed to prepare myself. And I see that. And I'm like, yeah, I, I could do that. I'm like, really? Well, now I'm scared. You know, it's one thing to... <laughs> It's one thing to propose an idea. It's another thing for your wife to agree with it. So I'm like, well, you know me. I get kind of out of hand sometimes. So I said, let's pray about it and see what God says. So for two months, we just kind of kept praying about it. We talked to people we respected, talked to leaders, and they were all like, yeah, this seems good. So we announced to family and friends, this is what we're going to do. And the following January, not unlike Melanie, we left. Early January of 2012, we left to Africa. We didn't have anything magical happen. We just... God slowly shifted our hearts. That's kind of magical. But God slowly shifted our hearts, and we decided, hey, let's do it. If, if one of you told me today, when church is over, I go and I, I feed poor people at a soup kitchen downtown, what would you, you would not expect me to say, how did God tell you to do that? And kind of look at you like, I need to hear your story. You'd, you'd expect me to kind of go, oh, cool. In fact, I learned something when we decided we were going to the mission field. If I told you I got a job at Google, 
and I was going to be in upper management making three, four, five hundred thousand a year, you'd be like, man, that's great. God's really blessing you, right? If I told you, yeah, man, we've just done really well. We've saved money and we're, we're buying a house. Uh, we're buying this great house in Hyde Park. It's like, you know, seven bedroom house in Hyde Park. You'd be like, cool, right? In other words, I could share so many things with you about a life decision. And what I wouldn't hear from most of you or and you wouldn't hear from me is like, well, how do you know God said that? But over and over and over again, as we headed toward the mission field, people would say, well, how did God tell you to do that? And they weren't mad, but it's almost like they, they gave away the fact that we have a different standard for missions. You have to get a magic call for missions, but you can take really high-paying jobs. You can buy nice houses. You can, you know, all these different life choices, some of them really big, some of them small. You can do any of those, no questions asked. But as soon as you tell another Christian that you're going to Africa, they want to hear your magic story of how you got called to missions. You don't have to have a magic story. In fact, I think a really wonderful, smarter luck answer would be, well, I was just reading Matthew 28, and I decided to be obedient. <laughs> right? I mean, you could say that if you decided to feed the poor, right? You, oh, I just read the Bible, and it said to feed the poor and clothe the, you know, yeah. So feed the hungry, clothe the poor, whatever. I was mixing up my adjectives and nouns. Okay, so guys, some of you in this room maybe have thought for a long time, gosh, I wish God would call me the mission field. Maybe he is. Like, you really want to go, but you're just waiting for the magic call. Well, you're one of the people in the room, I'm just telling you, just go. Just make plans and go. You're allowed. If you really desire to go to the mission field, see, God's not always trying to make you do the hard thing. Sometimes you got to do the hard thing. But we have this idea that God's mean, and he's kind of always going to make you do the hard thing. So I just want to run one mile. I better run three or whatever. I, I, you know, I'm not, I can't have ice cream for the rest of my life or whatever. But what if that thing you want to do if it lines up with Scripture, that's okay. Do it. Go do it and give God glory. Now, you know, keep laying it down. Lord, is this you? If it's not you, I don't want to do this. That's what we did over and over. We said, Lord, we don't want to just run off to Africa because it's exciting. What are you saying? But, you know, we kept saying, well, this lines up with Scripture and we want to do it. So, um, so you don't have to have a special call. Missions aren't for the super spiritual. Last point, and this is what's going to apply to most of you. Missions are not only leaving See, we're all, we really are all called to missions. I know that bothers some people. But we're all called to missions. But your call may be to pray for Melanie and to commit to giving her money every month. That may be your call. And that's really important, I promise. We were on the mission field. We raised support. It was really important that people supported us financially. Wildly important. It may sound kind of mundane. may even sound kind of crass to mention money. But when you're living overseas in a country you're not allowed to work in, you need people to give you money. So some of you are college students. You don't have a lot of money. But I bet you could skip two Starbucks and give Melanie $10 a month. Maybe you could even work out a way to give her $25 a month. Don't pick a number that you're going to not do and you're going to feel guilty three months from now. And she's going to be emailing going, hey, I just wanted to see if you had been able to send that this month. And you're going to be like, delete or whatever. I don't know. I don't know what you do. You're not my friend, Melanie. I've never known you. And then you hear a rooster in the background. Just kidding. Okay. Um, did you know that up until 1910, from, the, from Jesus rising from the dead to 1910, only 10% of the world were reached. Reached meaning they had a viable Christian witness in their people group. Between 1910 and 2010, 75% of the world now has a viable, a viable witness to the gospel in their people group. 
There are 16,962, we'll call it 17,000 people groups um, recognized in the world. Today, only 964 remain unengaged. We're so close. We're getting close to the end, guys. Remember how Jesus said that every nation, every tribe, every tongue, they'll all have a witness? We're getting there. We're, only, we're less than 1,000 people groups away. We've gotten through 16,000. I have a, when me and Ceci were in Africa, we had a, it was a school, it's called the Church Planting Experience. And we helped, we went to it, we, we attended, and then we began to work there. And there was a man from Uganda who came, a black African man. I say that because there's lots of white Africans, okay? But he was a black African from Uganda. He came and he went to our school. Now the school was five months, three months were in country in South Africa. And then we sent people across for cross-border mission. So we'd send them to Nepal, to back to different places in Africa, Botswana, Kenya. We'd send them to um, Jordan, all, all over the world, really, but mostly Africa, Middle East, Asia. Um, he couldn't go. He's like, you know what? I've got a wife and four kids. I need to get back home. And it's a big stretch for an African to come across the whole continent, go to our school. So we were like, okay, you know. So he, he had to head back home. Well, on paper, you think someone like that's probably not going to do what they learned. Because they didn't even go and like, take what they learned and put it into practice on the short-term two-month mission trip. Here's what Wilson did. He went back home. He was a banker. By Ugandan standards, this man had arrived. He was a banker, owned a little grocery store on a busy street on the edge of Kampala. He went back home. He quit his job as a banker. He said, honey, i got to plant churches. And then he kind of let his, I don't like this fact, he kind of let his grocery store fall into neglect. He began planting churches four and a half years ago. House churches, 20, 30, I think his average church is about 30 people. Jimmy churches he's planted today? 800 in the last four and a half years. Yeah, one man hearing God's call in his life and just doing what God said. So my heart, I, I went to see him. I've gone to see him twice in the last two years. And I went to see him in January. And, and I was like, hey, Wilson, I'm coming. I want to love you and serve your family. What can we do? And he's like, do you want me to get you in front of a bunch of my leaders and to teach them and disciple them? Now, that's really intoxicating, you know. You get to go and speak in front of a lot of people and look really important. But I was like, no, man, I'm not going to do as good of a job as you do every day. Like, you're the, you're the PhD. You're the church planner. I said, I'm, I'm just like a kindergartner in this stuff. So why would I? I mean, okay, there's, there's benefit. I would love it if an African came over here and we got to hear him speak or her speak. But, but I just said, no, let me just come. Let me help get your grocery store back going. That grocery, you need to be making money for your family. So we went to his shop. We pulled out shelves. We scraped walls, painted them. We cleaned up. We, we added some stock. And we just served him. We added some light bulbs and tried to make his grocery store a viable business again. Because this man's planting churches. This guy's making disciples. Why would I waste my time trying to teach a few of his leaders something? Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. Father, we love you. Thank you, God, that you invited us to be a part of your great mission to reach the entire earth. Lord, I know some men in here and some women in here are called to go overseas. Lord, many are called to stay here and, and do the life they're already, live the life they're already leading, but live it with more intentionality and with being mindful of missions and being mindful of those who have not, not yet heard of your great gospel. Lord, I pray that you would touch hearts. Lord, speak to each of us. Lord, what is our role? What are you calling us to? 
Lord, for those that have always been excited about missions but felt like they were left out because they didn't have the, the crazy story, Lord, I pray that they would be empowered to go, that you would empower them and to, be, to be sent. Lord, we pray for Melanie, Lord, that she would raise all the support she needs to, to raise, Lord, from this church and from others outside of this church, from your body, Lord, in the world. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the Midtown Church Sermon Podcast. We hope this ministry has blessed you. If you would like to support this ministry, you can donate at midtownaustin.org.